I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86 Texas legislature. This week, the fight on the far right, whether the dozen or so movement conservatives who make up the fractious but effective House Freedom Caucus can get traction in an all-business, no-bullshit session. We've heard repeatedly in the earliest weeks of 2019 that sharp objects, the controversial policy proposals that can be the enemies of unity, things like vouchers and the bathroom bill and the litany of familiar social issues will be all but invisible in the 86th. This cannot sit well with members of the Freedom Caucus who gather at the outermost edge of the Capitol's ideological spectrum. In Texas terms, they're kind of like the burnt end of the Republican brisket and aren't afraid to disturb the peace on behalf of principles and values they hold dear. Or so you'd think. So far, Freedom Caucus members have been marching in lockstep with the boss, brand new speaker Dennis Bonnet, who's made his desire for unity over division, results over drama, the theme of his brief tenure as the presiding officer of the House. This week's guest has perhaps been the greatest exemplar of disruption and eruption unexpectedly morphing into kumbaya. Jonathan Stickland, Republican of Bedford, has been gleefully at the center of nearly every big fight over his three sessions representing District 92. But he can seemingly read the handwriting on the wall as well as the results of the 2018 elections. His side fared poorly, and his side of his side especially so. He himself barely made it back to Austin, winning with less than 50%, which is why he's talking about trying to get the conservative agenda through with, as he puts it, more honey than vinegar this time. If even Sticky is dialing it back, can the Freedom Caucus survive and thrive in the 86th? We talked about that and much more when we sat down on the afternoon of January 22nd, day 15 of the 104. Point of Order is supported by Texas A&M University, where research is being taken from Earth to Mars. Visit fearlessfront.com to learn how Aggies are looking forward on every front. And by the Texas Bankers Association. For almost 200 years, Texas banks have been cornerstones of their communities. More at texasbankers.com. And by the University of Texas at El Paso, now designated Carnegie R1, placing it among the nation's top research universities. Learn more at utep.edu slash R1. Every two years, you tell me, in the middle of the election, I'm coming back and I'm bringing friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's your phrase. That's your preferred right. way to say I've got confidence in the outcome of the election. You always insist you're going to expand the membership of the Freedom Caucus. Mm. Usually you bring back a couple. Mm-hmm. This time you barely came back yourself. True. Um, we, we had a closer election than we anticipated. What happened? I, I think the Democrats did an incredible job. I really do give them credit. Um, if you look at the actual numbers, Republican numbers statewide were higher than they've ever been before. In fact, uh, what was interesting to me is Dan Patrick, for instance, statewide, if you look four years before in the previous election cycle that was similar, um, he actually received 1.4 million more votes this last time. But he won by 19 points last time and five points Correct. This time. Right. So if you look at it, Dan Patrick earned more votes than he ever had. The Democrats, I think, deserve the credit for driving out their vote like we've never seen before. So you think this was uh, people voting for something 
and the something in this case was the Democrats, as opposed to people voting against something or reacting to something? Or do you think it was a combination of those things? I, I, I really honestly think that both parties did a pretty good job. A Republican increase was, was up there too, like I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but the Democrats did a better job. So no, I don't. I don't think there was, you know, a rejection of conservative principles. If that's what you're talking. Well, about. I don't know that it was rejection of conservative principles so much as the theory of the case has been that there was a Beto O'Rourke effect. That maybe Beto O'Rourke at the top of the ticket was the. He best, was an incredible candidate. Best candidate Democrats had since maybe Ann Richards running against George Bush in '94. I think without a doubt turned people out. That there was reaction possibly to the president. So there was a negative reaction to the president. And third theory is that maybe there was a negative reaction to some things that happened in the session last time and people were saying, we're putting you all on notice. I, I think if, if, if those are the three options, I think it was definitely number one. I think Beto deserves a lot of credit for what happened in Texas. So you, in you, fact, yeah. I, I mean, looking at their strategy, for instance, the guy that I ran against, uh, the Democrat, um, really, I mean, he, he, he worked, but he didn't have resources or anything like that. He was completely off of our radar. Right. Their entire game plan, even his own campaign, was all about Beto at right. the top of the ticket. And they felt like they could ride the coattails in on that. Co and it was a good strategy. Of work. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, you had a libertarian in your race. You got below 50%. Yes. Had it not been for the libertarian, might have won. Some of those votes might have gone to you. I think so. But they, they also might have lost. Could have lost. Do you yes. consider yourself at risk? We'll come back to this at the end. But do you now look at yourself as one of those members who has to watch it this session and has to take a message from this election of some sort, or do you come back into this going, well, I survived, and that's great, and now I'm going to go back to being exactly who I was last time? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I, I think, I'm, you know, I have not changed any of my core principles at all, but to say that I haven't learned a lesson from the election would not be true either. But if Beto O'Rourke was the reason that you came within a couple of points of, of losing, I mean, really close, well, maybe, maybe the closest margin of any of your colleagues who survived. I mean, you know, maybe Dwayne Bohack was a little narrower, but the fact is you came really close to losing. If Beto was the reason, then why would you take a message from that other than hope that he's not on the ticket or somebody like him is not on the ticket? Well, I I'm not hope, getting it. I, I certainly hope that he's not on the ticket. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about the realities of my race in particular. Yeah. The night of the election, I was in Dallas County helping another candidate. Um, we did not spend any money really in the general election whatsoever. In fact, my campaign gave out hundreds of thousands of dollars to other areas of the state. You might do that differently if you had it to oh, do Oh, without over. a doubt. Right. I mean, and, and that's the biggest thing that I learned was, you know, I've got to uh, not take for granted yeah. uh, staying in touch with the people back at home. I don't think it was a rejection of the way that I voted, but right. I think access um, was something that I heard from folks. Yeah. Um, instead of maybe traveling the state as much and working on other races. Represent your district. Well, I mean, Be I, in your I, district. I, I, you know, we definitely did that before. I'm not going to say that we yeah. didn't. But I think that I got comfortable in the level of support that I had in the district and I wasn't looking to grow it. Right. And I think, you know, over the years, um, that naturally starts to people move and, and things like that. So, I, I have a larger focus on talking to folks. And there's no doubt in my mind, though, Evan, I want to make this point, that the people of my district have Christian conservative values. That, that is what they want. That hasn't changed. So you're now yeah. beginning your fourth term representing this district, District 92. And the composition of the district ideologically, the, the degree to which this district is as conservative as it was when you first got elected, that's not changed. You don't think the district think has so. gotten less conservative? No, no. They want the same things they wanted the first I think time they, they elected you. You know, the first time that I ran, for instance, um, I could tell you I, I spoke with 7,112 people at their door. Now, 
if you talk about block walking numbers now, people count if they just knock on the door. That was actually the amount of people that we talked to. You literally had a conversation. Yes. yes. So it was actually probably, you know, over 20,000 doors that I personally knocked on. Right. It was nine months of campaign Monday through Saturday for yeah. me. And, you know, that did not happen this last election. And I think that, you know, there were people who were voting in this last election who I'd never spoken to before. All right, so you're, you're willing to argue that it was process or it was the Democratic turnout or whatever else. L let, me, let me turn this around and ask you, does the Freedom Caucus, of which you are a proud member now, then and now, last session and this session, um, have anything to answer for in your mind as it relates to the message delivered by the voters? If not you specifically, was there a reaction to a certain kind of politics, a certain volume of politics, a certain set of policy positions, people said, you know what, we want to get a little bit closer to the center than that. Maybe we don't want to go there. And so we're going to deliver a message to certain members who are out on the edge. Come on back a little bit to the middle. I, I don't think that it was a message sent on positions. I do think it was a, a conversation to be had about the way in which you go about it. You see? Uh, talk, the, talk about that. Well, under the, under the Strauss regime, many of us were forced to deploy political tactics that, frankly, we would have rather not had to use. So it was his fault? I think it was a lot his fault. And, and let me tell you that uh, just the couple of weeks that we've had the new Speaker Bonin, I've even been amazed at the difference. Like, I knew it was bad under Strauss. I feel today that it was worse under Strauss than I even knew at the time. And the complete difference in just the way that members are interacting with each other. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a for instance. I got to go into the speaker's office and have a meeting with them for the first time ever. I've ne been you here. Were you were I've never been in the here speaker's for six office years. one time in the previous session. I, I never got to sit down and have a meeting with him in the speaker's office. Right. I received one phone call from Joe Strauss ever. Okay, and it was the night that I won, and he called to tell me congratulations. That was the last time. And that was the last time. Isn't it a little irresponsible or immature, representative? Let me just float this to say we behaved in a way that we regret or shouldn't have, but it was the mean speaker's fault that no. we behaved that way. Don't you own your stuff? No, You're that, a parent. Would you let your kid get away with that? Well, what I'm telling you is, is I don't regret what we had to do. I think that no. it just took so long to get him out. It would have been ideal if we would have been able to kind of put on a different communication hat, if you will. But when you've got a, when you've got a speaker who literally turns people's microphone off, when you've got a speaker who won't take people's phone calls, if I am really, truly trying to represent my district, I've got to be willing to do whatever it takes. And so I, I think the fact that he was there for 10 years, right. um, that it just was like, man, it, as, from, from the conservative standpoint, watching every session, the same result, being let down. The Republican Party comes out, here's our priorities. The Senate is passing them. All these things are happening in the same story. It's, oh, it's over dead. and over. It's dead. It's right. dead. I think people just got sick of it, and and they want to start looking at right. proactive solutions. And so, this last election cycle for me was not a rejection of of where we are, but it's like, man, we really would like to start being turn the page. Yeah, turn the page and get some. Did of this you compromise? Done. Would you acknowledge that you and maybe some other members of the Freedom Caucus, if what you're saying is true, you had to behave this way because the speaker wouldn't give you the ability to represent your districts? Did you compromise your effectiveness? in the course of reacting to the way that the speaker treated you? No. Did you did you pass fewer bills? Did you present more of a disruptive force than you wish you had? No. 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 You would have been as effective if you had gone along. No, I don't think so. And 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 part part of the part of the thing that's frustrating from my perspective is is that uh, and I'm not picking on you, but the media in general, the the folks who who look on I think they're lazy in some of their reporting in that they say, "Oh, well you've never passed a bill." 
you would not believe how many pieces of legislation I have literally drafted myself that are now in statute. And, you know, yes, I never had a bill with my name on the top of it. Okay. And why do you think that is? Because that's what I had to be willing to do to get the actual legislation. You think the speaker prevented you from passing bills? 100%. 100%. Right. I do. And so, you know, uh, especially last session, I mean, I think it was, uh, there were some interesting quotes from even the Democrats. Uh, I think the Freedom Caucus was running the show. And well, you all definitely punch above your weight oh, as mean, a rule. <laughs> Given the number of members you had, the curve bent toward you more often than not. Now, there are some people in the House who say that's ridiculous. But if you're on the outside, I think you understood you all were disproportionately influential to your yes, numbers. A- absolutely. And, right. and, and one of the reasons for that, in my opinion, is there's actually a group of people in the Texas House who align with us on the issues, who I think want to be on our team but, and work with us. But, but under the Strauss regime right. and, and that tyranny, frankly. Um, tyranny. Were, I literally tyranny. think so. Yeah, I know really? that's a harsh word. Don't hold back, Representative. No, tell I'm not. Us what I'm you not. Actually think. I, I, I mean, I'm here to tell you some of the stuff that happened, especially you know, uh, bringing in two new parliamentarians, for instance, eye-opening experience for me. And you mean the current speaker bringing in two yeah, new parliamentarians? It's talking par- to it's perestroika. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And and you know, having talked through with them, I, I went and had a meeting and right. sat down with them for a couple hours and, and discussed uh, some concerns that I had and had some questions about you know how they anticipated. Do you think the they heard you this time? I think they did, and, and, but, but what was weird about that meeting was is as I'm asking questions, their response of, I can't believe that happened. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's been happening for six years. And almost like, you know, in my head, just simple things. Yeah. So you mentioned that the speaker had served five terms, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a guy who is absolutely about principles first, about values first. You do not compromise your principles. That's who you are. Right. You do the unpopular thing if it's the thing that advances your cause and your case. I tried to, yes. Representative, who did you vote for for speaker last session? I voted for Joe Strauss. You did? I did. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. The tyrant. Yeah. What well, happened there? Well, here's the funny thing. Uh, we went to the parliamentarian uh, the night before the election, and we asked if there's no one else nominated for the speakership, and we vote no, does it matter? And the answer from parliamentarian standpoint was, if Joe Strauss is the only, only person nominated then all he has to do is vote for himself, and he is speaker. You couldn't white-light that vote? You couldn't cast for, a for, protest for what, vote? For, for what purpose? Well, listen, I've seen you over the times you've been in the legislature say, I'm putting principles first. Sure. I'm going to do something that's unpopular. If it's 149 to 1, I'll Absolutely. be the one to advance the cause of the Freedom Caucus or the cause of conservatism. You could have chosen in that moment to white-light the vote for speaker. If there was a conservative who had run last session, and I thought that they were going to get his vote, or her vote. But you couldn't have just cast a protest vote. I, 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 think, I think that is the kind of immature stuff that we're talking about. Now, see, I voted against the speaker when uh, Scott Turner was running. Right. I was, I was able to vote some, for something, okay? And it had consequence. You were not prepared to vote against something in this case. Well, especially when it had no consequence. Right. Tell me what the Freedom Caucus is. So I, I want to understand. I think I know, and I know members of the Freedom Caucus. I have a sense of what the Freedom Caucus individual members stand for. I take it seriously and take them seriously and take you seriously. So take this question seriously. Mm-hmm. What are you guys about? What do you stand for? We, we believe that there, are a, there is a disconnect in Austin right now. And, um, and by Austin, you mean at the Capitol? At the Capitol, yes. Right. And, and politicians in general who are so disconnected from what the average everyday person is asking for, the grassroots, if you will. So we created the Freedom Caucus. You know, we've, we've always kind of had a group, uh, a band of, of people who were – 
the opposition to the Strauss leadership team, if you will. Uh, but we decided to make it an official caucus last session. And so it was just and to stop you. It was about him specifically? No, no, it wasn't. So were there other speakers in the past who did not reflect conservative values to the extent that you all felt like you needed to parcel out a piece over here on the right? I, I, I think that the freedom, well, let, let me answer the full question, then we'll get back to that. The Freedom Caucus to me literally exists to promote core values, okay, and to put those in every conversation that we possibly can. And then the second part is to amplify the voice of the grassroots, who by uh, many of our opinions is muted here at the Capitol. So to take the outside and bring it in is, is my vision of the Freedom Caucus. Right. If it was a reaction to the Strauss regime, no, I, I then think, why not disband now that Strauss is gone? Well, I think, I think that that's you know, a question. And, um, is that something you're entertaining? You just came from a Freedom Caucus meeting today. I'm, Did you guys talk about uh, this being the last episode of the TV series? No, no, because we still absolutely want to push core principles. And, you know, at this point, we have many other things in the caucus that are beneficial to the conservative movement. We get together and we plan bills. We, right. we talk about our legislation. We talk Set about... Set priorities. Yeah, we, we do things like that. So, you know, I, now I can't tell you that if it didn't exist that we would have made it out of the blue for the new speaker, uh, for instance. But right. it definitely now has become a calling card, I think, right. that frankly, a lot of people identify with. So tell me, as tell long me as some, it yeah. fulfills that purpose, then I want to be a part of it. Tell me some things, Representative, that you were for last session that you accomplished, that the Freedom Caucus was for, that you got done. Other than getting rid of law. Strauss. <laughs> okay. Um, well, CPS put, reform. Put that at the top of your list, but tell me the second thing. CPS reform. CPS reform. That wasn't really a Freedom Caucus priority so much as an entire well, but, legislature you know, priority, right? Uh, Everybody wanted that done. Yes, but... Freedom Caucus Republicans, non-Freedom Caucus Republicans... Democrats, the governor, yes. right? But that was a very expansive bill. Had a lot of different elements yeah, to it. Yeah, but you could have passed that bill if you had not existed as a Freedom Caucus. Yes, but here, here's, I don't know if you know this. Uh, my office did over 100 interviews with CPS-involved people from uh, foster care parents to people who had been through the system to CPS workers up and down uh, to police officers. And we actually published a 20-page report, my office did, by myself, on CPS reform. And many, and this is months before the session even started. This was my interim project that, yeah. that me and my staff. So you feel like on. you and the Freedom Caucus own that issue and own that legislation. I'm and not going to say in we part, own in part. I, I think that there were key elements to the CPS reform. Right. The Freedom Caucus influence that otherwise would not have happened. What else was on your agenda besides that? That, I, like I say, that's kind of a bipartisan issue. But okay, stipulated that you cared about that and you worked on it. Fine. Right. What else did you want last session that you got accomplished? We got some good pro-life legislation done. Um, I, I think that. Uh, that was an issue that many of the uh, folks in the House did not want to have come up. I think we forced to that issue. Yeah, but the votes were overwhelmingly in favor of that legislation. Sure, the majority, once it comes right? to the floor, the votes are right. uh, typically there. I think, uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus, without a doubt, made sure that Texas leads a nation in the strongest sanctuary cities bill. Um, and that, it, was the, that chair, and it was, was the chair of the Freedom Caucus who authored the now famous absolutely. or infamous amendment yep. that is still called out as a rep point of reference on last session. Yep. Right. And, and you know, for, for the average everyday Texan, I think the biggest impact that we've had is you have to look at um, not just that one session, but look at the budget, for instance. When I came in my freshman year, uh, the budget that we passed was a 26% increase in total state spending. We increased about 26%. Government grew. Last session, actually, we pulled that down so much that it was below population plus inflation, and conservatives were able to 
uh, vote for it. And you think that's a Freedom Caucus win? Oh, I, I think absolutely. You that's think a you orchestrated it? The rest of the House marched behind you. I all. think the you fact can claim that as a win. Yeah, and and you know, uh, there, there's two different aspects to this game. There's obviously the actual piece of legislation side of it, and then you've got the political side. And when you've got people coming in and telling hey, this is what's going on. When you have people raising their hand and saying, we're going to take a record vote and people have to go on the record on some of these issues, we're not going to just pass amendments. So transparency is another thing that's oh, a absolutely. freedom caucus priority. I mean, that, right. that, that has been... The All transparency? I believe so, Transparency yes. in voting? Yes. Transparency in sources of funding yes. for campaigns and candidates? Yep. So you are on the record uh, wanting to eliminate dark money. I reject that premise. Well, are you for transparency or not? I didn't just fall off a truck. No. Come on, you just said you were for transparency. No, I think that you're confusing that. How, explain. I've got all the time in the world. This I, is a podcast. Yeah, so go I ahead and explain it. I don't think that C3 and C4 dollars are necessarily political in so nature. So some transparency, but not all transparency. Yeah, well, you're talking about, I mean, I went from talking about record votes. Right, but I asked you to, if you were for transparency on campaign finance, and you said yes. Yes, but I think, that it, I think that it should be burdened on the people who are spending it and not the actual donor. Okay? Does that benefit, the, ultimate, does think, that benefit the voter at the end of the day if the, if, the, if the burden is put back on the donor and the donor doesn't want to disclose? I think it's a speech issue. I do think this is a constitutional issue. So transparency, but not in this Well, in this you know, case. no, because no, I reject the way that you're, you're putting it. Yeah. Um, I think that if someone wants to give anonymously right. to a C3, C4 organization, that they should be able to do that. So the voters of your district. And let's talk about, because this is important. Right. I think there's a lot of misconceptions on this. Okay. Let's talk about why some of my colleagues want to be able to do that. Let's look at other states where they have passed measures to open that up. And it is prosecution of conservatives on their donations. We've seen it in Wisconsin. We've seen it in, in using it to attack your political opponents. So if George Soros were to give a whole bunch of money to Steve, what was the name of the fellow who ran against you? Steve Riddell? Riddle, Riddle? Riddle, Riddle, I don't know. So if George Soros had given a bunch of money anonymously, had he been allowed to give money anonymously to your opponent? I will fight for his constitutional campaign, right to do it. You, and I'm pretty good dang with, sure he's already it. doing it. You're good with it. I am. Right. I am. And, and we're not going to hear a whole bunch of tweets and other stuff attacking donors on the left in the Look, same way that you say they're attacking if, donors if, on the right. If people think yeah. that their politicians, their elected officials, are influenced by those kind of donations then they need to vote that person vote out. Vote those people out of office. Absolutely. So let me come back to what the Freedom Caucus accomplished last session. Let me turn it around now and ask you what the Freedom Caucus maybe advocated for but did not accomplish. Tell me a couple of core priorities for you last session that for whatever the reason, whether it was the speaker or anything else that you point to was the cause that you did not get done. Well, I think, I think we all wanted uh, some real property tax reform and relief. That was obviously the biggest one. Um, I, think, I think that we have the same desire to get something done on school finance and the way that it was um, used as a political tool last session Explain. against us. Well, Explain. Um, you know, if you, if, like we're talking about putting more money into public education this session. Correct. Okay? And if you look at our campaigns, I mean, I could bring you a dozen mailers that I have sent out in my district over the last few years, and I've been talking about putting dollars into the classroom. Right. Okay. And so many of us were frustrated because we had a desire to put dollars into the classroom. But the money and the way that it was being presented in the House was, oh, we're going to raid the rainy day fund and we're going to give a blank check to administration. Well, my memory was that Chairman Huberty's bill, HB 21, put about a billion and a half dollars into public education. Yep. And 11 of the 12 members of the Freedom Caucus voted against that legislation. Yep. How come? Uh, because, number one, where it was going. It was going to 
administration of public education. We are trying to make sure that these dollars get to where they should be, which is where. So define define how I that the teachers. define how that looks. How does it look to give money to public schools and mandate how that money can or cannot be spent? That looks like making sure teachers get paid what they should be paid. I think we need. So you to have, so you want to put the money toward as the Senate has apparently done in its budget. I want to pay this good time. teachers more money. You want to put the money in to raise the pay of teachers. Good teachers. Now, I don't think the Senate bill distinguishes between good teachers and bad teachers. Well, I, I, believe what it says, I haven't talked to him yet. But I think what it says <laughs> is I think what it says is a $5,000 raise for every teacher. And, of course, my reaction yeah. to that was good teachers, bad teachers, in-between teachers. Also, yeah. what if you're a school district that says, God, we have a need in our particular district that is not teacher compensation. Why are you requiring us to use the money for that? Maybe we need something for facilities. Mm. Well, I think that's uh, what has gotten us into some of that mess is listening to those people too much. Uh, because in, instead of passing the dollars that we have put into education down the line, they've been building, you know, water parks and football stadiums and building beautiful buildings. Um, you don't believe on but it. Di but didn't you just tell me that if, if the voters are unhappy with the way their politicians are behaving, they can vote them out of office. Can't the same apply to school board members? If you have a school district and you're concerned about the way that public education funding is being spent in your district, you can exert the same measure of accountability on those people I'll, and vote them out of office, I'd, can't you? I'd be willing to give them more of a benefit of the doubt if right. we could move their election to the same as ours and quit acting like these races aren't partisan. Time-wise. Yes. When they, when they get to hide in an election in May, um, you know, I was talking to uh, a Hearst City Council member uh, a couple of years ago, and he made the comment, well, you know, we know what's best here at the local level. And I'm like, hey, when it comes to local stuff, I want it to be your decision. But You believe in local control. I do, but as long as you're not stepping on somebody's rights your constitutional rights. I mean, some of the stuff that these guys are pushing under the name of local control is nothing other than screwing over property rights for people. So and, you're, and you're I'm sympathetic not, I'm not okay to the Don, former Senator Don Huffine's argument that this is not about local control, this is about local liberty. That was the way that he framed it. I, I, I like that, but, but let, let me tell you what I told him. So yeah. he was like, well, you know, th these people elect us. And, and, and I went back and I looked, and, and this guy had been elected in the city of Hearst with less than 1,300 votes, Okay. 1,300 votes, and he won that city council race. And well, voter turnout sucks in this state. Oh, it's horrible, yeah. especially in the municipal races and right. the school board races. You get elected by no well, I went, basically I no went and looked right, at it, yeah. and you know, I, get, I get tens of thousands of votes out of the city of Hearst for my election. And so if you want to talk about local control, think I think my mandate— it, Do you think they're gaming it to keep the turnout down so that these elections well, are not on people's I, I, radar I'm screens. not trying to blame a, a specific individual, but I think definitely the system right. um, is, is rigged to have lower turnout. And I would like to see these races— right. Uh, be partisan, because I think they already are, yeah. and I would like to see them move to November. Okay. Uh, Rep, what else did you all advocate for? Give me another thing that you advocated for last session, Freedom Caucus advocated for, that maybe you didn't get, and venture a guess as to why. Uh, certainly some spending limit bills. Um, we, we would like to see that. That was a bill that came up in the special session and died at the very end. I think that bill was actually uh, one of the big undoings of the Strauss regime when we had that challenging of the chair uh, by Representative Tan Parker. I don't know if you remember that or oh, not. Oh, of course. Um, big moment in the Texas House. So, so do you consider the session end-to-end -to, -end to have been successful from your perspective? Last session? Give it a grade. Grade the session. C minus. C minus. A lot of missed opportunity, you think? And, and I think the only reason it was a C minus is because we did a lot of heavy lifting. You think it could have been worse? Oh, I think it was definitely going to be worse. Why are you more confident in Dennis Bonin than in Joe Strauss? You indicated that at least the affect of the speaker in the first couple of weeks, the meeting you had with him, meeting with the parliamentarians, you feel like, you know, thousand flowers blooming. It's a new day, right? Well, look, I mean, I, I want to be friends with Dennis. We've had some great uh, conversations. I think he's 
heard my complaints. Um, You've I had think, some great conversations. I've seen pictures of your great conversations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we really have had some great dialogue. You get along with him okay? I respect him. Um, do you get along with him okay? Yes, okay. we do. Yeah. Um, not all the time. Um, but Dennis is, I believe Dennis is a straight shooter. And that was one of my biggest complaints is, is that, you know, the Strauss team never just told you no. They waited to stab you when the lights were turned out and you didn't know what was going on. I think if Dennis Bonin wants to go against me on an issue, he's going to just knock me upside the head. And I actually appreciate that. So we can keep... Just keep it straightforward, uh, right? I want to I know what, what, you know, right. what the thing... Did the Freedom Caucus as a group, again, 12 people, everybody goes their own way. They may be all part of the same caucus, but they've all got individual perspectives on this stuff. We disagree. Uh, my, my memory is that the Freedom Caucus was at least initially, initially... Cool to Bonin, with the exception of Jeff Leach, who's since departed the caucus, and maybe Matt Krause. But yeah. there, was a, there was some convincing that had to happen of members of the caucus to get on the Bonin train. We were, we were, we were talking for years about uh, there's a Strauss problem, but there's also a process problem. And the way that power had concentrated in the speakership under the Strauss regime needed to be rolled back. So, um, you know, for the Freedom Caucus, our agenda all along was we can be okay with, frankly, quite a few different options for speaker, but we need these sub substantive changes in the rules and the process. And so um, when Bonin initially came out, there were people who, you know, got the answers to their questions. There were some of us who were more hesitant and wanted some reassurances on some of these uh, changes in application and, and whatnot. Right. Um, and so I think that's where you may have seen But eventually a you bit. all came around. My, my yeah. understanding was that you were a holdout early on. You were not for it. And then you left town and there was a meeting in your absence and the speakership was effectively picked from your pocket. You, you came well, back- that's, to, you that's came saying back, I ever had it well, in my you, pocket. you came back to discover that your opposition to, the, to, to Representative Bonin as speaker notwithstanding that the caucus had basically said, we're on the Bonin train. Yeah. Um, well, I was on vacation, that is for sure. Yeah. And uh, we, I had had a conversation with many of the Freedom Caucus members a couple of days before going on vacation. And I said, hey, guys, we, we may end up with Bonin. You know, he's saying the right things right now. And there were a lot of people who, you know, felt good about him. Yep. Um, I would have waited for a couple more assurances to feel comfortable to have jumped. But I have since afterwards you've gotten come, those... You've come to understand and accept what they did. Not just accept, but yeah. I actually think that we're going to... Uh, get those changes that we desired. Right. He, so he, I, would, yeah. I would have lined it up beforehand probably, but ultimately it ended up being okay. Well, so, and I, that's the beauty yeah. of the Freedom Caucus is, you know, we're not led by just one person. We collectively get together. We disagree sometimes. Right. And, uh, you know. Sometimes you, you change. Well, sometimes I have to step back and say, man, if 10 of my friends think that I'm wrong, I've got to really question my position here. You know? I, I hadn't, and that's I, kind of I, the position I was yeah. in with Bonin. I hadn't thought that flexibility was the brand of the Freedom Caucus previously. Well, some been more than others. Some do. Um, okay. Um, I was with Speaker Bonin on Friday in Lake Jackson as we sit here, talked about the session. I asked him about this concept of all business. This is going to be an all business session. We've heard him talk about this. Priorities for the session, number one, public ed, number two, public ed, number three, public ed, with property tax relief or reform sandwiched in there. I'm not hearing about the so-called sharp objects that emerge on the table every session. I'm not hearing about controversial issues that have a tendency to divide the House or divide the parties or even divide a party like the Republican Party, the freedom guys from the non-freedom guys. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with a session that's all business, no bullshit, 
go home on May 30th, May 30th or June 1st or what have you, sign and die, that's it, no specials. Do the business, do the least amount, and get out of town. Are you I, good with that? I, uh, I think it's, it's not exactly the situation that, that we have here. I think that more so than a change in policy direction is a tone. And I think there's also a larger dedication to actually getting stuff over the finish line that there's never been before. But can you tell me a specific policy? You said, oh, we're not going to deal with the controversial yeah, I asked him, stuff. Okay, I asked, him yeah, about the, I asked him about the bathroom legislation that bedeviled so many people last session. It divided the House, obviously. It was a big feature in the narrative of the last session. I asked him about but that. But we won he that said, issue. How'd you win that issue? Because the policy that we were scared about with the school districts preempting but you didn't pass the legislation, we either the Simmons legislation in the House or to. the Cole course in the Senate. Right, but we got the, end, the same end result. So like the lieutenant so, governor, you're declaring victory in the absence of a legislative victory. Yeah, and, and I don't want to spike the football. I want to move on to the next priority. Right. So you have no problem with the speaker saying, he's now said, his, to my ear, he said four or five times when asked, will a bathroom bill get to the floor of the House? The answer is no. You have no problem with to. it. Okay. I don't think we need to. I asked no. about vouchers. Now, if that changes, right. then maybe, but right now. I, I asked about that. vouchers. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, you know, I've always been a guy who likes competition, uh, but there have been some "quote unquote" school choice proposals that have scared the heck out of me. Right. At the same time, so if vouchers don't make it to the floor, or don't even get a legitimate hearing in committee, whether it's Chairman Huberty or Chairman somebody else, you're okay with that? It's it's not a number one priority for me. Um, Right. But I would like to see us talk about. You know, there's there's a lot of different things. See, you want to you want to narrow it down to about school choice, and to me that fits into. No, the, actually, I don't. You asked me specifically right. what I'm talking about when I mean sharp objects. I'm saying there are the kinds of issues like public education and property tax reform. Well, see, that, that's where a, the parties might disagree, mm-hmm. but where that's generally regarded to be meat and potatoes, kitchen table, all business. And then there are the issues that come up every session, and they certainly can come up right. that have a tendency to blow up the kumbaya. Yeah, right. And and I'm I'm sure that there's going to be different levels of kumbaya as the session goes through. Right. Um, but, no, school choice, as as most in the media or folks back at home might consider it, is not a top priority for me at this time. Um, not saying I don't support it, but right. I've got other things that I'm looking at. I'd, I'd much rather focus on charter schools and some of the successes there when it comes to public so education. So let's talk about public education. I mean, we charter yeah. schools, but other stuff as well. So we said last session you were not comfortable with the Huberty bill that was going to put money in the particular way that it was. Coming from Fine. the rainy day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, it was going to be fu- peace. Well, that's important, uh, though. Okay, peace. What's going to be different this time? Well, we don't know yet. Um, there's a lot of different well, you've proposals. You've seen the base budget. Do you like the base budget? Yeah, That's but uh, a lot of money in the public ed. Sure, and yeah. and I'm okay with that. But I want to make sure that it's being allocated the correct way. Um, it, you've got you, when you when you're talking about putting more money into anything, we've got to look at what's going to happen with school finance. I've got to look out for my district. You know, I've got areas of my district that are being Robin Hooded to death right now. So I need to make sure that, that that's being handled too. So, the, you know, it's, it's nice to say, and, it, and frankly, it's easy for me to stand up here and say, oh, I want to put more money in, but, but it has to be a but right now. Is that There's the, too yeah. much hang- If we put in $5 billion in the public education and House District 92 school districts don't get any of it, then guess what? No. Is there a consensus, <clears throat> a consensus among Freedom Caucus members about this issue? This time, as there seemed to be last time, that they were if not If it's ha- going into the classrooms, to yeah. the teachers, where education is actually happening, I feel there is a desire. So you're going to have the same conversation you had last time about, about the, the— It sounds like it's more structured, and I think we have leadership rather than opposition. The destination of those dollars. Yeah, I always felt like last session uh, the quote-unquote school finance discussion right. was actually being driven to hurt 
that our friends on the other side of the Capitol, rather than actually right. be policy. What, that was my what about the argument of some, I've heard some conservative members of the legislature, some in the Freedom Caucus, but some not in the Freedom Caucus, say, we're not going to give any more money to public education unless public education documents for us in a real way, in a concrete way, that they are spending the money we're giving them now effectively and efficiently. efficiently. So um, what about that? I mean, we, we obviously need some accountability, um, but that's a trick, trick statement because I'm also fighting for less standardized testing. Right, so, so the speaker said the other day right. there was some question that the School Finance Commission's report, the report that emerged from this process during the interim, talked about uh, more accountability from public schools in order for this new source of public education money, this additional money to go in. And there was some speculation that that might mean the return of high-stakes standardized tests. Mm. I asked Speaker about that. He is not for that. So not you guys that. are aligned on that. Absolutely. As far as that goes. So uh, what I, does accountability I, look like then in terms of what the schools produce? What is the metric of success? Uh, well, I think it's got to be a combination of a lot of things. I remember what accountability looked like when I was a kid. It was my mom sitting in the principal's office demanding that I be with, you know, who she had talked to her friends and figured out was the best teacher in that grade. Um, now that sounds like a good story or whatever, but I think we've got to get back to a point of, of, of trying to figure out how to measure, you know, uh, in a community, you know who the good teachers are. It gets around. And um, if there's a teacher who can take on a couple more kids than, than some of the others and excels in different areas, I think we need to start looking at those things. Um, I think we need to start looking at eventual outcomes of, you know, how many, how many taxpayers is a school producing? So outcomes-based funding is something that you're for in the case of public ed. It's an accountability in, measure. In some of it, but not when it comes to standardized testing. What about the grading system that the TEA has in place? I regret that vote. You regret that vote. That was a vote you cast. You voted for it. You regret it. Why? I do. Why? There's two votes that I remember that I can tell you that I regret, and um, that is one of them. And I think that it was a poor rollout. I think it was a good idea in general, uh, but I think the implementation was horrible. So will you be introducing legislation this session to undo the A through F? Uh, possibly, or either complete, completely get rid of it or fix it. Yes. Um, let me ask and, you and about part that. of that, I mean, you know, we, we had a delay in a lot of these things. I mean, it was, <laughs> right. well, it, it, it was the, bad all the, the way around. The implementation of it. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you about pre-K. A lot of discussion about early childhood as a, uh, a necessary element to any uh, uh, additional funding for public education. We have to make sure that we adequately fund pre-K. Pre-K is important in terms of building the workforce for the future of the state. I seem to remember a conversation a session or two ago about pre-K being a form of godless socialism. Hmm. Where are you on that who's, conversation? Whose quote is that? I believe that was Joanne, what is her name in Tyler? Fleming. Joanne Fleming. I believe that was Great Joanne lady. Fleming. Uh, but, but she's not the only person who argued against pre-K. Yeah, somehow I'm, I'm, I'm antithetical against, to the values of this state. I'm against mandatory full-day pre-K. If the school district decides this is how we want to spend our resources um, and they want to maneuver their budget and what we have given them to supply that, then by all means, I, I think they can do it. You know, uh, actually... Representative Jason, uh, former Representative Jason Vialba. Mayor Vialba to you. Yeah, I doubt it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think uh, had a great, an interesting proposal. And it was, hey, we'll fund pre-K, but we're going to make 12th grade optional, which was interesting to me. Here, here's what I don't want, Evan. Um, I don't support the government being in charge of our kids for a majority of their day, Monday through Friday, from cradle to grave. And when you start talking about taking a three-year-old and putting them in a full day with a public education system and go all the way through high school and then have everybody get into college for four years too. That is a huge portion of a kid's life. 
And I find it actually hypocritical because to me, when I look at the public education data, there's one clear thing that sticks out. Parental involvement drives success. And I think the more that government fulfills the role of what the parents should be doing, in my opinion, we give them an excuse to not be as involved. Are you sympathetic representative to the kids in the state of Texas who may not have the benefit of good parents? They may not have a Mrs. Stickland in the principal's office advocating for her kid. Well, this is my point. Right. I think that if government sets up a system where parents can feel comfortable with not being a good parent, uh, that creates more bad parents. So you want to put more responsibility back on the parents? I do. Yeah. I do. You mentioned teacher pay. You believe that the funding of public education should at least the additional funding at least be directed to increase the pay of teachers. I do, into the, the classrooms. Candidate. What about teacher pensions, retired teacher pensions? That's another area of some disagreement, I believe. The method of funding, it maybe is different between the Senate and the House-based budget. A lot of time to get at that. Teachers have been banging on the doors trying to get you all to well, fix every, it. Every, every year since I've been here, this has been a problem. They've had a shortfall, and we've gone in and fixed it, and it still wasn't enough. Uh, so there's two clear things, two trains of thought I have on this issue. Number one, as a conservative, I think when you make a promise to somebody, you have a moral obligation to keep it. And in the case of the current retired teachers and the folks in there, we've made a promise to them that here's a standard of living that you're going to have. Here are things that are going to come your way. And they base their entire life decisions on those promises. And I believe it's a moral problem if we cut that out from under them. So we need to figure out a way to keep that promise. I also think that we have to look at... Uh, the new folks coming in because this is a broken system uh, that cannot be sustained. So we need an exit strategy. And so to you, give would be, you would be for options. not making the same promises to the current generation of teachers. Or at least was, giving them options. Or was I mean, giving them the, control the of their destiny. Right. I mean, right now right. they are completely dependent on a bunch of, you know, legislators down here in Austin, which is uncomfortable for them. And, and, and frankly, I think they're used as a political tool, especially by the left, and march down here because they're scared. Especially by the left? How's, I that, how's that exactly? I, I think Democrats will not try and fix the actual problem because they want those folks up here yelling and screaming and to blame Republicans every two years. Yeah, you're doing more honey than vinegar, I can tell. Well, you're asking really tough questions and I'm not running away from let them. Me, let me ask you a question about um, the rainy day fund because you've, you've fulminated against spending money out of the rainy day fund a couple times as we've been sitting here. I believe the House-based budget in trying to address the teacher pension problem relies in part on an allocation from the rainy day fund. So I'm, I'm you're going to be you're going to be for that uh, potentially. And and the reason I say potentially is I've got to look at it. So uh, the rainy day fund for me is one time expenditures. That's what I fought for the whole time. One time expenditures can't be an ongoing expense uh, or needs to be an emergency. Um, Teacher pensions might qualify in the minds of some people as an emergency. Well, where where I would put it is it it's a one time expense to make it whole that is going to actually save us money. So we're, we've already have that obligation. It's really just paying down debt. So you would consider that a one time? And that I would, would consider it, but I want to know, I want to know, you know, the other aspects of it. But look, <clears throat> I mean, you want to, you want to know what the Freedom Caucus has been able to, to, to do. And we've been pushing and fighting for that for six years since I've been here is to, keep to protect the, the rainy keep day Keep the fund. corpus of the rainy day Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay, where, so, yeah. where would we be right now had we spent? I mean, we would literally not have a rainy day fund right. if we had passed all of those things. All right, so I hear Trying you. Trying to deal so, with Harvey and look, everything. Okay, I mean, so look, look, it rained. It rained. It, it rained. stormed a lot. So there's, a, there's a, an expense associated with the rebuild of these communities as a consequence of Harvey. Are you for or against using rainy day funds, funds, rainy day fund funds, to pay down some of the obligations on Harvey? Yes. For or against? 
Four. That would qualify for you, even, even Jonathan Stickland. That is what I have been fighting to save it okay. for. Tell me what kind of property tax reform or relief is possible in this session, given what was not possible last session. Well, I, I, I hope that my colleagues are talking about, you know, for me, when, it, when, I, when I talk about property tax relief and reform, it, I want to see something that is tied to abolishment of the system, okay? I, want to, I think the whole system is corrupt. You would get rid of it. I would completely get rid of it. And replace it with what? I think that we've got to get rid of a lot of the loopholes that are in the tax code. I want everyone to pay the same amount. That includes you know, all the ta uh, corporate tax cuts that are out there. Um, I'm so just, you would raise taxes on business effectively by getting rid of loopholes um, that corporations are taking I don't think of? it's raising. I think it's making everyone play at the same level. You sound like a Democrat. How? Democrats say that all the time. I'm not raising yeah, then taxes. They don't vote I'm against simply it. getting rid of loopholes. Yeah. Well, I'm for everybody what paying the, the same What about the commercial amount. and industrial appraisal break uh, that's about $5 billion if you simply make commercial industrial appraisals be what they ought to be as opposed to what they are? It's said that there's $5 billion available to redirect into public ed or anything else. What th about that? I think we need to talk about that. And, the, cor and the corporations that would be subject to that change They're gonna be really would ticked. be unhappy. Yeah. You don't have a problem with that. I don't. I don't like corporate welfare. I believe in the free market, and I believe in a level playing field, and I don't think that's what we have Is right that, now. again, a shared Freedom Caucus priority? Um, I think for the majority of them. I can't speak specifically for all of them, but I, th I think right. after I beat them up on the issue, I think they'd get there. <laughs> Remember the last <laughs> session, what happened at the end was the House wanted to make the threshold beyond which local officials had to go to the voters to raise property taxes. They wanted that to be 6%. The Senate wanted it to be 4%. They could not find common purpose. So we then, ended at 25 So then after the election was over and the governor was running for re-election, he said 2.5%. Yeah. Today, we're, on the day we're sitting here recording this, the lieutenant governor has said he still believes 4% is the threshold. Are you all going to be any closer to 4% in the House if you couldn't get it done last time? What makes you think you're going to get it done this time? Well, I haven't officially um, you know, been a part of all those discussions. I don't know if I can speak on behalf of the House. Um, well, tell me why you think I, the House, I, an 8367 House, is more likely to see a lower threshold as a good thing as opposed to a 9555 House. I think we have leadership. So you think the Speaker, who was, a, was of course, chair of the Tax Committee, Ways and Means last time after all, knows this issue. You think he will organize Marshall and I get think it done. Republicans know that we have got to deliver results. And, and is that going to be 4%? I hope it's lower. You hope it's lower than 4%. Yeah, but let me say this, because I know a lot of local officials are upset about these caps. Sure, and they'll be back lobbying against them this time. Yeah, with our taxpayer-funded dollars, which I'm against too. But what I want, when I look at the, these caps, we're not taking money away from them. We're just saying, if you want to raise taxes, you got to go get approval from the voters. Because you think there should be accountability. I do, but, but let me say this too. Right. I mean, some of the tax proposals we're talking about here it's my desire to want to keep them whole. You know, I'm not trying to take a hatchet at this point. So when we're talking about changing the, the tax structure and, and moving dedicated funds around and getting rid of some of the corporate tax cuts, I mean, there are so many businesses in House District 92, for instance, that don't pay any taxes. They can't collect sales tax on them, okay? Um, when you start talking about changing the whole tax code, it could end up being a win for the cities. It just depends on how it's done. So if you want accountability... So they want to take yeah, it as, a, right. as, as, a, as an attack on cities. Right. I think it's pro-taxpayer. Let them have right. more of a voice. No one's trying to just take But don't out. taxpayers, Representative, don't taxpayers have a voice already? If a local official gets off the leash and raises property taxes, they can get voted out of office. You yourself talked about the power of accountability at the ballot box when it came to school board members. Yeah. Right? Well, I'd be Why to... not vote council members and commissioners and other local officials who get off the leash on property taxes out of office? That's the accountability. It already exists. Yeah. Well, if we move the election to November... Okay, and make these nonpartisan races 
what they really are, partisan, I feel a lot more comfortable about, about some of those things. Um, let me ask you quickly before we, we wrap up here, what else would be on your agenda? Big conservative, big honking, hairy conservative priorities with that Freedom Caucus brand stamped all over them. What else are we going to be talking about or should we be talking about this session? Um, I think the easiest place for me to start is the priorities that the Republican Party has told us, the top five legislative priorities. Um, you know, the Second Amendment is obviously an issue that I care deeply about, so constitutional carry is something that I would love to see. You have the votes in the House for that? If it gets to the floor, absolutely. Yeah, I do. Does he get out of committee? That's the battle. We'll see. Okay, so that's for, okay, that's first thing. Yeah. Second? Um, second one? The second one uh, would, would probably, for me, uh, would be election stuff. I think that we've got a lot of different um, election reforms. That what we what need more to on the about. election reform front do you need to do? Do you want to do? Well, there's been a bunch of bills, I don't know if you've seen, filed to uh, get rid of voter ID, so obviously we need to uh, protect the gains that we've made there. I'm, I'm very big on uh, putting a lot more of this stuff to the vote. I would like to see a lot of the debt and information provided to the voters when they passed a, bo a bond election, for instance. More transparency. And more transparency in the election process. I want to have a very serious discussion about moving the elections to November, not just to save money, but to also increase voter turnout in these elections. And uh, yeah, I, th I think that's big. I'd also like to close the primaries. Close the primary, so not allow people to cross over. No mischief. That's right. Right. So you have to vote in the primary of the party in which you are registered. Correct. That's what I would like. And do you believe that there's been an effect on the outcomes of elections as a result of that? Oh, 100%. One side or both sides? Both. Can you point to an example? Um, I think that there have been, in the, in the strong Republican areas, I think you have Democrats who want to be involved in the process, getting involved and the Republican primary and acting like they are Republicans um, and running candidates and right. spending money there. And I think that, you know, uh, some of the involvement in some of these Democrat races, it's cut both ways. Isn't there an unintended consequence of redistricting here? If you make it so that the Democratic Party doesn't matter in a Republican district, where do Democrats go to have an impact on the outcome of elections? Into the Republican Party. Well, they right? can come on down and we'll give them a nice lesson in liberty. So you want to try to convert them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely do. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned from this last election because um, if you're down in Austin enough, you will come to realize that whether they're Republican or Democrat, we all agree that the same problems exist. The debate that takes place down here is about how to fix these problems. And I'm convinced that the conservatives have the answers to fix a lot of the problems that everybody else agrees with. As long with. as you get to make the argument. Yes, and, and I think that we have to be conscious of the way that we do it too. And I think that's one of the things that I'm most excited about this session is um, taking the message of yep. individual liberty to people in a, in a more compassionate way than I might have been able to last time. What is the first, last question, what is the first volley in the 2020 campaign going to be from you? What is your message to your voters back home so that you don't have a repeat next time of what happened last time? How do you get reelected next time? I think we have to bring home results. I think the worst thing that can happen for my reelection efforts is for us to do nothing on property taxes and do nothing on public education. So and, if you all don't issues, do it, then they're coming for you next time. Yeah, and it's not just talk about it. It's actually, here's some tangible things that have been delivered um, on the issues that we've discussed. Okay. Yep. Representative, good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, State Representative Jonathan Stickland, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, 
Texas A&M University, the Texas Bankers Association, and the University of Texas at El Paso. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith. We'll be right back.